the Christian church is celebrated, sometimes in different ways and with different regularity. But the Christian church coming together to remember that God loved us in Christ Jesus to give us an identity of value and acceptance, as Jared reminded us, and that we can know him. And uh, tonight, we also want to receive something from the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So God can break in on any of those things. He, he always is seeking to do more than what we could ever do just humanly. And our prayer continually is that God would take all of what takes place and use it for His praise and glory. He speaks to people's hearts. He changes us from the outside in. He gives us a destiny and purpose to live. And that's what we've been doing again tonight. And by God's grace, friends, we're going to keep doing it. And we're going to keep believing that God will do what only he can do in the days that lie ahead of us. And tonight we are continuing our little series that leads up to the Teachfield Park event in a fortnight's time, simply called Big. You see, at times we have a, 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 perhaps a challenge to believe in big, but God's a big God. And uh, we continually, as leaders and ministers and communicators of the church, want to continually uh, encourage us to believe for the big of God. We look around tonight, and as we're reminded at the beginning of the service, there's quite a few folk away. We're entering that season of the year where people go on holiday. And uh, we've got that to and fro of people being away and coming. And sometimes you could go four or five weeks because as you go away, somebody else comes back, etc. But what we try and say intentionally in Arena Church is we, we don't want to go to sleep till September or even mark time or just sort of keep things in quotes ticking over because when we get to September, it's going to be hard work. We want continually to believe that God will do something. And when perhaps as tonight, things, uh, numbers are a little bit down, we're just going to keep pressing into God. The other thing, friends, is that we just want to keep believing for what we sense sits over our church in thinking long and sowing into the generations to come that God wants to build in this town, in Arena Church. He may want to do it in other contexts as well. That's great. Uh, but in Arena Church, in this context, these places, and God wants to do something big. He wants to do something significant. He wants to do something beyond what any of us have seen before. And we need to keep sowing into that. Sometimes when we feel pushed back or discouraged or it seems so slow or not so many people are coming, whatever it is, to continually step into it. Because we realize, I was just thinking about it this afternoon, that's what we've done from the beginning of this journey of Arena Mansfield, which is now nearly four years old. We had lots of people saying to us, you won't get till Christmas. We started in September, so that was encouraging, wasn't it? It'll never last. You'll never get a building. Nobody will come. It'll never grow. You won't be able to afford it. You'll be, you'll be financially ruinous. All these wonderfully encouraging things wafted across the life of Arena Mansfield. And if you don't believe it, then it's absolutely true, Christian. I'll tell you. All of these things came. But here we are still pressing in. Sometimes conscious that it's still the beginning of the journey and not the end. And as we've been encouraged in some of the teaching that we've done in recent times, we want not only to think of today, we want to think long. We want to look into the future. As I was saying this morning in our prayer time in Arena, we want to look into the future because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Many Christians are dominated by the past. 
used to happen, who used to speak, where we used to be, what I used to do. And it's all gone, friends. And we honor the past because it always positions us for the present and the future. But we want to press into the future. And we've been looking at big. Christian reminded us that there's a big purpose that sits over our life. And we must not let anything press down and stop us living the big purpose of God. Last week, we were reminded that we've got a big God that is way bigger than us, way bigger than our thoughts and our ideas and our ways of doing things. Uh, And he's able to do exceeding abundantly more than we can ask or think a big God. And as we think about reaching out to people, as we're encouraged by the work that John and Mandy have done this week, as people prepare to send out leaflets, as maybe conversations continue to take place, as we continue to seek by God's grace to plot a course, to continually have an outward focus from this church, and there are many, many things we want to do, and we get frustrated at times that we can't implement some of those things straight away for all sorts of reasons. But tonight I want to remind you that God wants to set us up for a big catch. And if you've got a Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 15, uh, Luke chapter 5 for a few moments. And I want to read you a wonderful incident that took place in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. And I want us to be encouraged tonight, not to look around and think, yeah, there seems to be quite a few away. Not to look around and say, whilst we thank God for what he's done, um, you know, is this it? But to believe again tonight, to come again tonight and say, God, we know that you want to do something big. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Wonderful. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners, that word there is fellowship, those in fellowship in other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at, at, at Jesus. Uh, he fell before Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, because from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything. And followed him. There's a parallel passage, friends, in John 21, where Jesus, post-resurrection, again, he's on the Sea of Galilee. I'm not going to read it. But again, he said to Peter, um, uh, have you caught anything? He says, no. And again, in verse 6, he said, throw the net on the right side. I can just imagine Peter saying, here we go again. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because the number of fish was so great. And Peter realized it was the Lord, and he went towards him. And uh, they had breakfast together. A big catch. 
know, friends, I, I try and listen to the, the language and the message of churches. And, you know, every, mes- every church carries a message. Some churches, sadly, the message is nobody else is welcome from the people that we've already got. They might not think they're sending that message, but they do. So I went with somebody once to a church not too far from here. And it was the classic. Just as the guy was about to sit down in the chair, this woman said, Hey, you can't sit there. That's my seat. Nobody sits there but me. Imagine if you'd been a Christian, somebody from the first time that you invited from the office. Because she was saying, you're not welcome actually. Because if you're going to sit where I'm going to sit, please don't bother coming. Some churches send a message of wanting basically to maintain what they've got. They talk the language of wanting to go forward, but they won't make the radical steps to implement it. Some churches, friends, send the message, frankly, being too alive. Because as we've remembered tonight, breaking of bread, the reality is that in the right sense of the word, we all need to die a bit more. Because if we want God's ways and God's thoughts and God's ideas and God's purposes, we better get out of the way and let God do and say what he wants to do. And thank God, friends, there are churches out there that are still passionate about sending out a message that people are welcome, that they want the church to grow, and that they are in for a big catch. And I suggest that those sorts of churches capture the attention of heaven. Here in Luke chapter 5, and its notable parallel in John 21, both incidents took place on the Sea of Galilee. In both situations, initially, there'd been no catch. Jesus comes in the power of his presence. There's a willing response, and everything changes. The only difference was that one was pre-resurrection and one was post. One engaged in a calling to the Lord, the other one was a commissioning from him to reach a world for Jesus Christ. And the disciples were committed to wanting to catch fish, so much so that they left everything to follow him because their catch was no longer to be fish, but it was to be people. I believe that Arena Church Friends wants a big catch, but I want to reinforce it tonight. It's not just about Christian. And you've heard Christian pray or prophesy with great passion about what he sees regarding the big catch. Christian, keep putting it out there. It's not just about the elders who meet and pray and plan and think and are forever seeking God about how our church may go forward. It's for every one of us to engage and send out this message, not only to the earth, but also to the heavens, that God, we want you to do something. I notice also that when I listen to churches, very often they confess a big catch, but then they begin to talk themselves out of it with language like this. Well, how would we cope if a hundred people got saved next week? And how would that affect the equilibrium of the church? Well, it would affect the equilibrium of the church. And they're basically saying, we don't want it to. We want to know everybody in the church. We want to know everybody's name. We want to know everything that's happening in people's lives. And if lots of new people came in, that would spoil it. And how are we going to disciple them? And so what happens, friends, without us realizing is we stop putting out any bait 
because we pull back on our expectancy, we then, almost without realizing it, sign up to believing for no catch. The number of people I've had come to me over the years say, it's all right, you're going on about people getting saved and revivals and folks flooding into the church. We could never deal with them. I tell you, friends, if we keep saying that, God's not even going to give us a chance to do it. In the Bible, there were 120 people on the day of Pentecost. Interesting, isn't it? 120. Actually, weren't that many, considering what Jesus had done. But 120 in unity, in one accord, put into practice what Jesus said. He said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise from on high, the power of God. And they got wonderfully filled with the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, we remembered it as the day of Pentecost in the calendar of the church, the birth of the church and the coming of the Spirit in power. We find in Acts chapter 2 that Peter stood up with 11 and preached an amazing message. And he says there in that chapter that people were cut to their hearts. It's what we call conviction. That people come to church in the languages. It was like God was speaking just to me. And they were cut in their heart. And the Bible says that day, 3,000 got saved and were baptized as they gladly received the Lord. So now the church is 3,120 in one day. In one day. How did they cope with that? And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, bear in mind that Acts is written by a doctor, Luke, who loved forensic detail, picking over things. He's giving up counting. He sort of, because then he talks about multitudes. And Bible commentators believe, friends, that in a fairly short space of time, the Jerusalem church was 20,000 strong. A big catch. The Bible says that they filled the world with their teaching. Of course, people tried to stop them. Not because they were a bad church, because they were a good one. Of course, people put people in prison and said, if you don't stop talking about this Jesus, you're going to be in serious trouble. Guess what? They just carried on. Of course, there was a cost. Of course, there was a price. But they filled the community with the love and presence of God. They were looked upon and, and, and people said, see, those people have been with Jesus. I think Acts 2.42, that has become a verse that's very central to our journey over the last few years across all of Arena, is a little indicator as to how they cope with this. Because it says they devoted themselves steadfastly or continually to the word of God. They continued hearing the input of the word to prayer. An absolute dependency on God. Why did we pray over that 21 days with fasting with some fresh intensity? Because there was a fresh dependency on God. It was interesting during that time how many people in the churches we've spoken felt that God was saying to them, I want you to draw closer. We're praying for the big pictures. We're praying for the big things. But there's that sense of you need to lean on me. So the word prayer, breaking of bread, as Jared's led us tonight, they simply broke Bread. They remembered the Lord's death. They never stopped becoming rooted in the cross when people vie for that. And fellowship. Bear in mind that they didn't have any church buildings. And that it, it's thought that the early church didn't have any church buildings for up to 300 years. Now, please hear me. We're not against buildings. We've gone on a journey of a building. 
I don't know whether some of you that have been around a little time can remember when the house church movement emerged in the UK. In the 70s, it came out of the charismatic renewal. Some of these guys would get pumped up. They'd go red in the neck. The ears would go red. We don't want to build it. We're just going to meet in houses forever. And they railed against the established institutional church. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Voting vote. Quoting verses out of context to make the point. Most of those churches that have survived and grow, friends, guess what? They've got buildings. Because the reality is, in keeping with the message, the boat help, the, the, the building helps us to be a boat from which we can fish from. It gives us an identity. It helps us to be seen. It gives us a sort of base to work from. But the building's not the be-all or the end-all. The life of God is the be-all and the end-all. And you know, we've gone on a journey of small groups in Mansfield. As we've done right across the church. And it's been a bit, bit uh, sort of stop, start at times. And maybe a little bit more uh, difficult to implement than we envisage. But there's been a momentum, there's a great momentum here. And lots of people have been encouraged by the small group. That we're wanting to go to small groups, plural, going forward. Multi-lights all around Mansfield. You know, this week I drove to Mattisee five times in five days. And, uh, you know, I love North Nottinghamshire. I've come through Clipston on the way back to try and get rid of that 50-mile thing on, on the 614. And then, then I've got speed limits all the way in. And I come round. But I love all this area. I'm thinking, yeah, Mansfield... Look, Clipston, we could have a great small group in Clipston. We could have a great small group in Edwinstow. We could have a great small group. And so it goes on. That connect back to the bigger thing for inspiration and input. So the reality is, friends, this church didn't submerge. It thrived. 120 to 20,000 in pretty short time, building it upon people being self-devoted, to word, to prayer, to remembering the Lord's death, and to connecting and fellowshipping together. I read this recently. If you don't want a big church, ask this question. Ask the question about the fact that have you ever come to... So the person said, when people say to me they hate big churches, his response was, I am curious about what percentage of the town or city you've decided should not be saved. So when people say to me, we don't want a big church. We've got 80,000 people in our town, but we've got 50 people. You've decided, friends, that 79,950 folks don't deserve to hear the same message as you. That's what we're saying. God's into big. God's into grow. God's into community transformation. God is not willing that any should perish. You can see, friends, that as he looks at churches that say we believe this, they're more rare than we'd like to believe. And he comes close to where they are. You might say, Phil, you're talking out your head tonight about 70 folks, and you're going on about thousands. That's, I think that's just the reason I sat there and I felt God said to me, do it anyway. Just speak it out in faith again. Don't be impacted. Don't be pushed back. Don't be sort of reflecting the night with people away. Speak it to the heavenlies again. The arena church is believing for a big catch. So you know the story. 
It's a brilliant story. And I, I like, you know, like many of the stories in the Bible, I like to make my imagination run a little bit here. So they've been fishing all night. And I understand from... I went for a walk around um, at Codner Park Reservoir the other Saturday morning. And they're all out there. It was a lovely morning. I don't get fishing. I'm sorry. I just... I'm sorry. I've really, really tried. I just don't get it. I was healed, of course, when I was about eight, where we used to live in Nottingham. We used to live next door to Mr. and Mrs. Sharrox. He worked at Raleigh for years, and he was a fanatical fisherman. She was a fishing widow on Saturdays and Sundays. He was gone. Boom. And he said to me, Mum, one day, he says, would Philip like to come fishing with me? She said, I'm sure he would. You know. So there we went. We went to Attenborough Reza. I can remember it now. And I was healed immediately because I thought, what's that? He said, oh, that's bait, worms. And also he had his, he had his uh, egg sandwiches. And he went like that with a sandwich and went like that with the worms and threw them both in. I thought, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know. <laughs> of course, every time I put this out, there's always somebody in the church that loves fishing. Okay, always. So, you know, and they come up to me afterwards and give me a lecture about why I should get it. You know, so if that's you tonight, please see me afterwards. Fishing. But of course, there's professional fishermen as well, and there's people that catch fish for a living. Some of you may watch that program on the telly about the trawlermen from northeast Scotland. And we, knew, we know people in northeast Scotland. It's still a very important industry today. But these guys on, the, on Lake Galilee, they, they, were, they were fishing for a living. It was their profession. And it's like anything, if you're in sales and you go out for a couple of days and you don't get a sale, you're ticked off. There's no commission, there's, there's nobody, everybody's saying no, you're fed up. They toiled all night and caught nothing and then Jesus comes along. So how's it going? Well, not very well. So what you caught? Nothing. He says, well, I'll tell you what, if you point to the deep waters and let down the nets, you'll get a catch. Eyes rolling. Side of the boat. <laughs> they thought, you know, every amount of flesh was rising up in Peter said, Jesus, forgive me, why don't you just go and take a walk, you know. But he says, if you put the, water, the nets down in the deep water, you'll get a catch. Simon Peter says, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will. And they let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Let me just mention one or two things, principles for all of us to engage in, to believe that our church will continually press towards the big catch that's in the heart of God. Number one, they were overcomers. They overcame doubt, reason, skepticism, cynicism, their own professional expertise, and how often does Jesus cut across what we think? Oh, how often has Jesus cut across my plans, my ways of doing things, my thoughts on something, saying, actually, if you'll do this, this will bring the breakthrough. And often, friends, the reason we don't do it is because it completely takes away from us any sense of control or any sense of us getting the credit. He takes the foolish things, the weak things, the base things of the world to confound the things that are wise. But tonight, I want to encourage you again to be overcomers. 
and to step into all that God's got. The second thing, friends, is they were obeyers. They'd worked hard all night. Peter didn't feel like responding. But Bill Ibels uses this little phrase in the text from the New International Version. B-Y-S-S-I-W. We've worked hard all night, Lord. We've caught absolutely nothing. We're tired. We're fed up. We're frustrated. But because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. The Bible says that if we will acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, he will direct our paths. You know, sometimes, friends, we've got to stop second-guessing Jesus. Because you notice that Peter described him as master. Another word for that would be Lord. Because that's what lordship means. It means master. It means that he's in control. Lordship. Lordship. Lord, you're in control. We don't want to second guess your plans, your strategies. God giving us divine direction. Say, you know what? If you drop your net there, it's going to be incredible. Really? Yeah, there. Yeah, but Lord, we've been working like mad. It doesn't seem as like, no, if you drop it there. And to stop second guessing the Holy Spirit as he ministers the purposes of Jesus. And say, Lord, we've worked all hard. We, we, we even think you've got it wrong. But because you say so, I will. And the third thing is then they, they then became operators. Because in verse 6 it says, when. When they had done so. They had to put action to their faith. Faith without works Faith without deeds, faith without response, faith without an operation of what God says is completely pointless and will produce nothing. But when we believe in such a way that we're prepared to act upon our belief and put it into action, who knows what God will do? And it was interesting tonight, and certainly I've not had any collusion with Mandy prior to the meeting but I wonder if you are getting bogged down in the detail. I wonder if, like a golfer, you're engaged in the analysis of paralysis. You're picking over, you're picking over, you're picking over. How's that going to work? What's that going to mean? Is that, is that, instead of just saying, Jesus, you are master of my life. You have spoken. You have directed. You have given that plot of water for us to drop the net, and tonight, without any sense of apology, without any sense of delay, I am going to respond to you when we drop the nets. And I just find, friends, again and again, that when I engage with the when, God does amazing, amazing things. What happens? Well, they have this amazing catch of fish, so much so, that they had to signal to their partners. It's why we use the word partnership in terms of belonging to arena. The word there is koinonia, it's fellowship. But it's a beautifully uh, active, empowering word. They called their partners and said, guys, you're going to have to help us. Because the, 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 nets, the nets are full and the, and the boats are beginning to sink. Peter fell at the Lord's feet and says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinful man. Why did I ever doubt you, Lord? He says, Peter, don't be afraid, because from now on you will fish for people. He had a few hiccups on the way, but what a fisher of people Simon Peter became. What a fisher of people. They pulled up their nets and their boats and left everything to follow him.
You see, when people overcome, when people obey, when people operate faith, there comes an overwhelming supply of the purposes of God. Friends, we want to maintain the intimacy of everybody feeling they belong to Arena Church. And we want to create context in small groups for that to take place. We want everybody to feel they can always be prayed for and believed in. We want everybody to feel a real sense of belonging. But we don't want to do that at the expense of believing in a vision to see a great big catch of people that haven't yet come to Arena Church. Because I don't want to be that person. I know Christian doesn't. And I know the elders of this church don't want to be those people that are deciding that we don't want people to come because we're happy with what we have got. We got saved, friends. We didn't deserve it. It was by grace. We didn't deserve it. But God wonderfully came to our lives. And we want other people to find the Lord. You know, when God moves, friends, amazing things can happen. I know, about, I know around revivals and moves of God, there's, there's always the murky as well. People getting it wrong. And maybe unwise things that took place. But there's been some amazing moves of God, friends, in history that have reflected a great catch. And often it's been at a time when out in the world people have seemed distant from God. We live in a secular society today where it seems that so many people shake their fist at God and say, no, no time for him. Let me just remind you of one of the awakenings in America. There's been three in the history of time, in a relatively short history of that nation. In 1857, friends, there was a move of God. And this is what it says in this book, The Cure of All Ills. It's a wonderful little book on the power of revival and moves of God and great catches. In two years, friends, in the States, where the population was nothing like it was today, here's the quote. There were one million outsiders added to church membership roles across America in two years. The writer of the book says today that would be the equivalent of nine million outsiders coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a big catch. Here's what it says about that move. It says ships, as they drew near the American ports, came within a definite zone of heavenly influence. Ship after ship, arrived with the same account of sudden conviction and conversion. In one ship, a captain and the entire crew of 30 men found Christ at sea and entered the harbor rejoicing. Revival broke out on the battleship, the North Carolina, through four Christian men who had been meeting in the bows of the ship for prayer. One evening, they were filled with the Spirit and burst into song. Ungodly shipmates who came down to mock them were gripped by the power of God. And the laugh of the scornful was soon changed to the cry of the penitent. Many were smitten down and a gracious work broke out that continued night after night till they had to send ashore for ministers to help and the battleship became a place where people met with the Lord. In 1904, there was a great revival in Wales and again, there were things around the fringes that most certainly could have been done better. But within five months, friends, particularly down in South Wales and up the Welsh Valleys, 100,000 people were added to the churches. 
In some places, friends, 75% of the population went to the house of God every Sunday. Imagine 75% of Mansfield coming to the house of God on a Sunday. Alan Hewitt reminded us this week that there was a time post-revival where 78% of children that lived in Wales went to Sunday school every week. Today it's 3%. We need another move of God. What about Brownsville, Pensacola? You have to look on the map to find it. But it's just there right down in the Gulf of Mexico, a naval base. A pastor wanted a move of God. And between 1995 and 2000, 4 million people attended that church. And there are over 200,000 decisions. A big catch. An overwhelming supply. To the questions previous, friends, I've not got a cheap shot answer to how we'd cope, how we'd disciple. But I somehow feel, friends, that if we will be a people that will have a heart for God to do something that he's never done before, he'll give us a grace and unity to handle it. He'll cause people to rise up. To some degree, it's just about keeping it simple and doing the basics that God has called us to live with. So, a great purpose a great God. And tonight I want to encourage us again, hopefully not with hype and not with triumphalism, but with a great dose of realism as one of the leaders of this church on this pioneering journey in this town that needs a move of God and up and down the M1 corridor for us to confess again that we want to be a church, Lord, that attracts your attention. We want to be a church that comes to the attention of you here. We want to say again tonight that we don't want to confess anything over us that's small, small, that pushes back, that gives the impression to people that haven't yet got saved or been restored that they're not welcome. We want to be a church that says, because you say so, I will. That will drop the nets, even when everything in our flesh says it's ridiculous. We want to be a church that increasingly positions ourselves. For a big catch. Amen. Amen. I wonder if the